Hi guys, welcome back to Is It My Turn? Uh, the question where if you're asking me, the answer is probably yes, because yeah, I wasn't paying attention. Sorry, I was looking at my phone. Anyway, we are back in, we're back for the second part of our preview. Um, if you haven't listened to part one, I would suggest that you go and start there, starting from the beginning. Who knew? It's a thing. Um, in this episode, we're actually going to be talking more about the details of the topics that we'll be going into with each game we want to talk about in any given episode. Once again, I am with Nick. Hey, how you going? And Alice. Hello. Guys, so we've, we've got our, we know our topics. We know what we want to talk about when we get into games but anyone out there who's listening, they've probably got a sense of what they want to hear. Sorry, bad luck. We're dictating uh, what we're going to be talking about. And we're going to start with any game that we talk about. We'll give it an overview. You'll get an understanding of what the game is at its basic level, but we want to talk about its design, um, which is separate for those of you who, who sort of start thinking about design as an aesthetic thing. We will be talking about aesthetics and production qualities. But the first thing will be about the design of the game, which I guess is a little bit about really like the mechanics, you know, guys? You know, how, how a game fits together, that the, the game, play, game play, the flow, um, and I guess what we liked and didn't like about the various rules that we encountered yeah. Alice, yep. Your your thoughts on on game design? Um, I think when I'm playing through a game, you've got to think about elements like um, uh, does everything fit together? Do the rules make sense? Do the rules actually? cover all of the situations that you're going to encounter in a game. You never want to get, you know, partway through a game and say, what happens here? And got absolutely no idea. Um, the best games will have that sort of thing covered. Um, obviously with the internet now, it's um, much easier to jump online and look up and see if you can find, you know, corrections for rules and things like that. Um and whether there are parts of the game that, that break, that don't work, um, uh, places that you get to in a game and, and all of a sudden it, it, it stops working or stops flowing. Yeah. So I remember reading somewhere that a good way to talk about design was that if you designed something well enough, you didn't know it was there. So in fact, you might have said that. Uh, look, good good design is invisible. Yeah, I think that's that's the phrase I'm looking for. Good design is invisible. So I think for me the question of design in games is it depends on your starting point. I think there's a lot of reasons to start designing a game. I mean you look at some of the classic abstracts, obviously chess or go, but moving on to the – I think it was GIPF. There was a series of games from the late 90s, early 2000s I think called the GIPF, the GIPF Project and they were complete abstracts, total luckless abstracts. And – you compare the, the the decision to start writing an abstract like the GIF project versus, um, you know, a game we were playing relatively recently, Five Minute Dungeon. What like where does the decision to start designing that start from? That tells you a lot about why you would design a game. So is that is the idea to have a game? Is the idea to simulate something? Is the idea to tell a story? Um, my question about the design is 
if you want to make it invisible, if you want to make the rules make so much sense that you don't even notice they're there or that you start thinking within those rules almost immediately after starting to, to play the, the game, yeah. um, that's good design. But you've got to know why you set out to do it. Yeah. You know, like a, you know, one of the monster games I play is a game called Advanced Squad Leader. The reason to start designing Advanced Squad Leader was to produce narratives of World War II battles that were just like the movies. And it's done a really great job at that. But if you haven't watched those movies, that design is always in your face. There's always a rule or an exception or a plus one modifier that you weren't ready for that's going to just, you're going to trip over it. Um, whereas if you've watched a whole bunch of those movies, that design is invisible. It gets out of your way. Every time you see the little modifier for, you know, you get plus one for this type of smoke or plus minus one for that kind of grain hex in September, you go, oh, great. Well, I know what that means. I know how that works because I'm, you know, I'm in the simulation, the story of the game. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, design's not about the mechanics so much as do you remember they're there or do you forget they're there? Do they interrupt play or do they shape play? Yeah, yeah. That's – I think I'm, I'm quite similar. I, I want to feel that that the mechanics that someone has, is bringing to bear blend almost seamlessly into any of the themes that they're trying to, to bring to life as part of that game. So even an abstract like um, Azul, another game that we've been playing a fair bit recently, it, relatively – simplistic rules which play into uh, what is a, a from an abstract perspective a, a relatively simple idea yeah at no point do you really feel like the rules are getting in the way of what's being presented to you and I guess that's that's kind of what I'm looking for in a good in a good design of a game yeah uh, for, for those of you that, that, that don't know I'm a, I'm a designer by qualification yeah um, and it's got to be seamless for me. It's got to the the mechanics and the theme need to be a, a, a beautiful blend. Otherwise, I start going, what were, what were you trying to accomplish? So I think the question of themes are really interesting one because I think I mean I've spent a lot of time in my board game hobby on Board Game Geek. And there's a few words that always come up in discussions of design. Elegant is the one that I immediately think of. People like to describe a design as elegant. To me, I feel like that's more about efficiency plus invisibility. Like if the design gets out of your way and the rule is very simple, that feels elegant. Um, but going back to your question of mechanics versus theme, there's the kind of phrase I think that comes up a lot when the theme doesn't fit the mechanics is pasted on. The theme is pasted on. This is a, a term that gets used a lot, I think, to talk about some of the more... Uh, mechanical euros from probably the early 2000s. So things like Agricola is one of the – well, actually, Agricola is a terrible example. The theme's definitely not pasted on. But there are some kind of uh, – I think they used to call it just another stale euro. So there'd just be some euro design, euro game that was just, just felt like just the, the same old economic engine builder with resource management um, and the theme sort of didn't matter. Like the resources could be, you know – grapes and sheep and something else or they could be you know different kinds of metal from the periodic table it doesn't really matter um so I, for me i think the the interesting question is actually less about the connection of theme to mechanics and more about what did again what did you set out to accomplish because there's plenty of non-themed games and in, in azul i think azul is I, I mean i love the game but to me the theme in azul of building a mosaic floor it's it's daft it doesn't matter like as they proved with Sintra, it could be anything. <laughs> it could be anything that's tile laying. Um, uh, so I'm not, 
it could be building you know, making a patchwork quilt, for example. I'm not sure there that the theme and mechanics necessarily need to connect to make that a great design. Yeah. yeah. Well, one but I th- one doesn't get in the way of the other. Yes, I think that's the 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 issue. It's more. It's not so much whether the how much the theme and the mechanics complement each other it's that you notice when they don't work together mm-hmm. so if they actually clash in some way and um one actually hinders the other or makes the other make less sense and i can't come up with an example I off the top of, of my head I can but think of a great example There's yeah. a game called panic station where mm-hmm. you to, to fix a problem with the design of the game the designer it meant that every single player played a human and an android and part of the mechanics of that game was you could become infected by a disease that was a little bit like alien, a little bit like the thing. The stupid thing about it was didn't matter where on the board your android and your human were, they could be in, next to each other, they could be in rooms on the opposite side of the board. If one of them got infected, the other one got infected. So thematically, for some reason, they have this long... I don't know, umbilical connecting the pair of them that wasn't represented on the board, but it's the only thing that makes thematic sense and it broke the game for a lot of people. There's this notion that, you, yeah, the theme and the mechanics didn't connect. Why Why was your Android wirelessly telegraphing viruses to your human? <laughs> this makes no sense. Yeah. Which I guess that that can kind of lead into to the, the second point, which we'll be talking about on a regular basis, which is that that horrible notion i know a lot of people talk about it on in anything gaming but it's balance mm. yeah um and, and we can start talking about a, a scenario where a rule can tip balance um and does that break anything um you know do we've encountered a number of situations where we sort of find one thing overpowered horribly overpowered or one thing horribly underpowered um balance for me is it's probably this one of the most frustrating things if, if i start playing a game and i just end up going look i've played a good game but one particular thing meant that i was always running from from 300 yards behind the other person like rolling too many ones <laughs> That's not that's not necessarily that you can understand happens. Yeah, you know, if I've played some good strategies and then I roll a bunch of ones, I roll a bunch of ones. It's frustrating, but it's not the thing that that, I, that annoys me the most. But if someone is the first player, and as part of being the first player, they're put in a better or worse scenario. I mean, we can talk about uh, rum and bones, where trying to play as first player is so difficult because you're the first person who has to commit something moving forward and as soon as you put something in range, hey, it's trouble, yeah? And playing that is is really, really difficult. So, um, you know, balance is, is such a tricky notion and, and I get that it's it's a hard thing to do. Um, so one of the things that I guess we'll be talking about is, is where we see balance handled well and where we see it break, yeah? So there's also, I mean, part of the problem with the notion of balance is you're talking about so many elements in a game design. So you're talking about designer intention because the designer could intend for something to be quote-unquote balanced and we could find that it wasn't. You're talking about playtesting, how wide and how far was it playtested, were strategies noticed that broke the game or not. You're talking about meta, so you're talking about which particular players you play with. Um, you know, there are drastically different 
metas for every game. You know, I've read, I mean, Root's a great example. I've read strategy. We've read that strategy guide to Root recently where they were talking about things that never happen in the games that we play. So it's, it's a radically different meta for Root. But the other thing when you, I think you've got to think about when you're talking about balance is not only the game, not only the designer, not only the players, but it's there's balance within the game, there's balance across the game, there's balance throughout the game. So, you know, in a, game, a card game like Sentinels of the Multiverse, there's not only the question of is this individual card balanced within this deck, is it also, is the deck balanced against all other decks? And is the set of decks that you've chosen balanced? That's three different levels of balance, individual card, deck, and whole game. Yeah. And, you know, you think about something like Root, where you've got the card deck, you've got the individual factions. There's the question of, you know, are the factions balanced against one another when they're asymmetric, which I know you're going to want to talk about. Um, <laughs> probably, probably Alice even more than me yeah. in that situation. Well, I think it's one of the hardest things to get right in an asymmetrical game. I think it's the biggest problem with asymmetrical games and it's probably why there have been so – there's sort of a bit of a proliferation of them now, but it's why there are so few of them overall is because it is such an extremely hard thing to do because you're effectively creating – multiple games within one game that all have to interact with each other because if you talk if every single player is playing a different game effectively if there's if their victory conditions are different or if the you know the way the rules that they play with are different you know you have to work out how they play the game and then how they play the game with every other player and and trying to get everything right there is really really tricky um how those various cogs fit fit together yeah which to to look we're going to talk about it another time but but to touch on that we encountered very recently with a game of root mm. in the the weird combinations mm. that can come up that there are some games where someone's just going to be so far behind because everyone you know someone said well i'm playing this and i'm playing this and i'm playing that and the the three different factions that can get brought in brought to bear in a game of, of three players it's very, very different, and whilst they are, because they are completely different factions with very different ways of scoring the points, well, also they're all going to score points. But yeah, also different inputs and outputs. Like, yeah, you know, the, when, the, and the interface between those factions. Yeah. How do each of them, which is why I sort of use the term cogs. Yeah, when Alice is talking about it, because when you've got a game where it's not that multiplayer solitaire version of of a uh, of an asymmetrical game. But where there is an actual interaction between each of the factions, then there really needs to be that that's I think where a lot of the the where asymmetrical games can really fall down. If there has especially if there hasn't been enough play to yeah, play testing. Which is pretty essential. Yeah. I feel like with the- different people as well. Yeah. That's the thing, is that people play differently and think differently about how they play something. So if you've only play if you've only play tested with a small number of people, you're not necessarily going to find all of the breakpoints or all of the issues because people think differently and that mm. impacts how you play. There's a famous example in a game called A Few Acres of Snow, which was an asymmetric two-player game, um, card card driven, so like Twilight Struggle or Washington's War. Um, and I can't remember the name of the strategy now. It was the something hammer uh, named after a city in Canberra, uh, Canada. Quick aside, the strategy Nick was trying to remember here is called the Halifax hammer. Anyway, um, 
there was this one strategy you could do in the very first turn that made it unwinnable for the other side and it was sort of calculated that it, but they just hadn't play tested it enough. And there's a, there's a whole thread on Board Game Geek talking about this particular strategy that, that once you start doing it, it's over. The game's just over and that, that the British, I think it's the British always end up winning, but I don't know. There's something like that. Um, but going back to the design question, I feel like there's a real spectrum here, not design, sorry, balance, the balance question. I think there's a whole spectrum here that we can talk about from one level, which is perfect balance, which is every player plays simultaneously. It is luckless and perfect information at a point where you've got simultaneous actions, perfect information and luckless Conflict, gener- uh, conflict resolution, that is a perfectly balanced game, except that you can't account for player skill, player experience, player interest. At the other end, you can turn into a dice rolling luck fest, in which case player skill is irrelevant and balance is also is also irrelevant. So my question is actually how, how do you balance and where? You know, can you ba- do you balance against the player with a handicap? Do you balance against competition with uh, identical player powers, simultaneous actions, those sorts of mechanisms? Or do you balance for what I like to think of as kind of the meta? Do you balance for the meta like in Root? Do you go, the, I mean, the, the tweaks the designer recently made to Root, which I'm sure we'll talk about in the Root, the root episode um, have been they're kind of a masterclass in incredibly slim changes that tweak the meta, but not individual factions against one another. So it feels like they're the levels, right? Tweak the players, tweak the um, tweak the mechanics essentially, or tweak the meta. I think one of the just before we move on from balance, um, for me, one of the biggest issues of balance, and it touches on what you were just saying, Nick, is the extent to which um, a player has an ability to recover from either a mistake or um, a bit of bad luck. Or, so the rubber band problem. Yeah, and, and I mean obviously there are games which are designed to sort of eliminate players as you go and obviously I'm not talking about those but... Um, for for me, for example, um, Everdell is a beautiful example of the fact that if you are willing to change your strategy and to think broadly enough, even with what looks at the beginning like the world's worst hand, you can actually win or do really well. You can keep playing even if you start with what looks like rubbish. There are there are games where you could have, you know, the world's worst hand at the beginning and there's just nothing you can do about it. And for me, those games fail because for me the point of a game is to have everyone playing it, ha- being able to enjoy their playing experience. So if you make it impossible for one person to properly play the game that's that's a, a failure of, of the design and of the balance. Yeah, or, or even if not impossible, but, but if, if something is, if it's kind of stacked against them. Yeah, so if, it's so, if it's so hard to, to actually, you know, if you get to the point where you're like, I can't do anything. Claw your way back in. Yeah. yeah. So I guess in future episodes when we're talking about balance, that's the kind of language we're looking for, right? Like yeah. the balance at those different levels, yeah. player, player mechanic, yeah. et cetera. And I yeah. think, and, and look, as as I think we're probably quite aware, the nature of the, the discussion of balance is going to change for any different game because mm. what we haven't even brought up in this scenario is uh, adversarial games, race games and cooperatives. 
and and they all have very different balancing components as well, right? Um, which we will probably talk about in detail when we talk about any given game. You know, a comparison of pandemic versus root uh, versus azul, or for example, compare. You know, a, a good one will will be if we can compare the the balance between the three iterations of the forbidden games yeah, so forbidden yeah. island forbidden desert and forbidden sky their that, balance is all a, very different yeah, and really um, we get to that one yeah. stay tuned people yeah. it's going to be fun so obviously another important facet of, of any game really are the tactics that you try yeah uh, anyone who listened to part one you'll know that I try random stuff yeah I will start off with no tactics wing it have try and have a vague idea based on either what the theme seems to be or what the general rules seem to be, and then I'll evolve it from there. Yeah, um, I I mean I quite enjoy that kind of tactical space, but what I love about a game is something that's got uh, either breadth in tactical application or depth that's going to give me an opportunity to try new options, new you know. Um, a bunch of variety. New yeah. strategies. Yeah, new strategies. Um, different ways to approach the same problem. Multiple paths to victory. Yeah, multiple paths to victory. Yeah. Um, Nick, so, I mean, from a tactical perspective, what's 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 ringing your bell in terms of games? Um, I mean, look, we've talked, we would have talked about this last conversation as well. Root's the one that, that just get, I mean, it's such a tactical game. But going back to Everdell and before it, I guess, Race for the Galaxy, I really enjoy the flexibility that I know Alice also is starting to become excited by, that question of I've got a crappy hand, what do I do with it? Um, the beauty of games, like all three of those games, is that at any given moment you're not that concerned by the history of your gameplay. You're only concerned by your board position at that particular moment. Am I ready to take advantage of what has just been randomly thrown up to me? Which I think relates back to the design question we were talking about before. How do you balance mechanics against one another? How do you make sure that it is possible to build a flexible machine that can move in any direction as the game nears its end point? Um, which I think coming back to the questions you were framing for this discussion earlier, Mal, about you know, what tactics did you try, what tactics are you looking forward to trying, which I think is going to be part of the discussions we have about each Absolutely, board game. yeah. Actually, for me, what's exciting is thinking more after, you know, after having played the game 10 times, which we're going to be doing before we sit down to record each episode i think for me the questions are actually what was your first tactical instinct yep what was your like and for me that's almost always going to be from reading the rules I'm, yep. i tend to be the rules explainer when i'm except with this group <laughs> actually with almost every other group i'm the rules explainer but with this group we seem to take it in turns which is nice um but the being the rules explainer i tend to read the rules i tend to learn a lot from reading the rules and and I'll have some sense of what I want to do in that first game. But what I really enjoy about playing games is your tactical sense evolves. You learn from other people. It's very collaborative, even if it's a competitive game. And I think for me, the interesting question that I'm going to want to see us answer each week is what was your first gut instinct? Yeah. And then what did you try next and why? And then 
how did your tactical now evolve over the 10 plays of the game? There are some games that I just will never win. I don't know what it is about Seven Wonders. I just can't figure out how to make a particularly good tableau. Or at least I couldn't until you played 200 games of it on the app and told us all what to do with the blue cards. <laughs> <laughs> that was the point where I felt like I could make it work. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> but so, I mean, that's how I feel. I think, you know, you, a good game gives you a lot to play with. Um, We'll talk about this more in the Azul episode, I'm sure. We've got a few more games to play of Azul first, but um, Mel's recently come up with a strategy that in the matter of the three of us is not doesn't feel beatable. Um, and I'm, I don't want there to be one strategy that you just have to refine yeah, yeah. in points of yeah. efficiency. You don't want to f- literally find the key. Mm. Like that, You don't want a game to have that one lock. And again, to me, that kind of goes back to a balance thing because at that point in time, you know, like if someone's figured out that 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 key um it's 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 exactly like nick was saying with the the acres of snow game that if there's one thing that you do um that that kills it for everyone right yeah yeah absolutely yeah i'm i'm very hopeful that that uh that that strategy that that i've applied and and as we play more games i have no doubt that i'm going to be tested Mm. um but yeah it's an interesting space yeah I think um, what also will be interesting in our discussions is how, um, you know, how each of these categories interacts with each other. So if you're thinking about um, design and um, about balance and then how it interacts with strategy, um, you've got um, a game like Takedo where... If you're talking about design, one of the the genius elements of design of Takedo is the continually rotating who goes first, who goes next. Yeah, the shifting of play order is one of my favourite components of that game. Um, So, um, you know, whose turn is it is immediately answerable by looking at the position of all of the players on the board. Um, It means that – but it also deeply impacts on your strategy because – you know that the last person has the next turn. So if you jump too far ahead, you will lose turns. There is no set number of turns. Nobody gets the same number of turns because it's all dependent on your position on the board. And so that feeds into tactics hugely because you're constantly weighing up what do I want to do for myself, what do... I want to do to stop somebody else getting something that they need and how far ahead can I afford to jump and how many other goes will that give other people? And so that interaction between a mechanical element of the design that's been that that creates excellent balance then impacts directly on the strategies that you employ to play the game. And so um, I know that we will talk about Takedo, and it's one of the the elements of of that game that I think is is really really excellent. It is um, one of the things that kind of for me really elevated on the list of this is a game we need to talk about sooner rather than mm-hmm. later as well. You ra- you raise a really good point, Alice. I think are design, balance, and tactics just three words for the same thing, but different aspects of the same thing. I mean, you're all talking about all three of the words talk about an orientation to the kind of design space of the game. Like yes. Here is the here are the limits of what's possible in the game. Here are the things that are prohibited. Um, I really want to talk about Mikel Foucault now, but I'll save you all. <laughs> um, you know, here are the here are what you can do. Here's what you can't do. Here's what's forbidden. Here's what's allowed. 
um, here are the here are the limits of where you can move. Actually, the the you know when you talk about design, you're setting those limits. When you talk about balance, you're tweaking things within that field. And when you talk about tactics, you're talking about moving over a small part of that field. So it feels to me like those are three different orientations towards the question of game design. I'm making a lot of hand signals. You're missing out on a lot here. <laughs> Interpretive dance. Before, that's yeah. great. Um, and what I, pr- the last thing that I would point out about tactics, what we will not be talking about in terms of this podcast, we won't be telling you how you should play any of the games we're talking about. We're going to be talking about how we've applied it. You know? And even then, not necessarily in detail so oh, that you can God, no. copy I, I, it. I, people, I could not imagine anything worse than listening to me talking about the particular, say, for example, the Azul strategy. No one wants to hear it. We just want to talk about essentially that tactical space, Yeah, what's happening in that space. And the other thing is, it's probably worth talking about it, we're three pretty cluey people well we think we are but um you guys are cluey yeah. <laughs> but we're not i mean i've read threads on board game geek where people with advanced maths degrees solve games i'm never going to be there um you know I've, we are not maths people, no. people. <laughs> but we're also i don't think any of us rate ourselves as particularly good at playing these games beyond a kind of casual enjoyment of them yeah so the, the tactical questions i don't think are interesting from the point of view of can you win if you do this set of things um, you know, I mean, I'm thinking of that thread I found about Sentinels that talked about using two particular cards from two particular decks to win every game. We're never going to do that. That's not what we're here for. We're, that would be boring. Yeah, well, it's, yes. it's great for some people. If you, that's what you want to do, that's awesome. But actually I think what we're getting out of games is, is it's about tactical development. It's, yeah. about, it's about what does the game taste like on the first bite? What does it taste like when you're finished? Yes, Absolutely. Yeah, and I guess talking about taste, um, <laughs> the the next section becomes even more sort of subjective um, because we want to talk about the aesthetics of any given game, right? Because there are some stunning games out there at the moment. We've talked about it before. This golden age that we're in at the moment is is fantastic. God, there's also some stuff that's a bit rubbish from an aesthetic perspective as well. So... Um, from an aesthetic, I, I'm less concerned about, say, the the miniatures, for example. I have no doubt that if we ever talk about rum and bones, <laughs> we're going to be talking about miniatures because there's a lot of them. And definitely the choice of plastic colour. Yes, <laughs> most certainly. Um, but uh, in a lot of instances, for me, it's the, the, the artwork that gets used in some games at the moment um, and, and, you know, Straight off the bat, I start thinking. You know, when I start thinking about the aesthetics of games, it's going to be Everdell. It is so pretty, like it is just so pretty. Yeah. And Takedo. And Takedo, which is just if you haven't seen it, it's just fucking stunning. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I guess for one of the things that that I would like to to be talking about in any given episode when we're talking about the aesthetics of and and sort of these production value elements is did they add to that particular game? Like Everdell, I think it, it genuinely does. For, for If for no other reason, that, that, that damn cardboard tree. Like, Which ironically is a useless component. It's, it's, and I think that's kind of where it gets to it. It is useless, but it with the way that it then tiers the additional meeple in each season um, and the fact that you've, 
talking about you know this this forest dwelling uh, group of creatures to me it immediately actually puts me in the right frame of mind it adds to the thematic element considerably like so much more than if it was just a plain board with just squares where you put stuff like it, it would be nowhere near as great a game as it is but you raise a really interesting point there alice about thematics versus mechanics mm-hmm. because there are plenty of games that evoke theme like mad with components that are not what I'd call realistic components. Again, going back to Advanced Squad Leader, which for me is a little bit like the the litmus t- or the gold standard perhaps, the gold standard of thematic games because it's thematic to a fault. But the entire thing's played on uh, an abstracted, in terms of imagery, the board is not abstracted in terms of its effects, but it's abstracted in terms of its imagery. The, the counters themselves are in pretty bland colours and have very, very simple iconography on them. That doesn't take away from that aesthetic feeling. I agree with you about Everdell. You can't, I mean, it turns heads. You play it in the board game cafe and everybody, who's, everyone stops to look at the game. Yeah, no, no one can walk past that game. Yeah, I mean, the, the irony of this is I am absolutely guilty of pulling the trigger on Kickstarters or Everdell, for example, um, that are beautiful. I have at least at least one game in my collection that is just flabbergastingly gorgeous but almost unplayable if you read the original rules that it shipped with, which is Myth, right? Um, Myth is absolutely gorgeous, but Myth was the game that for me started me thinking about Kickstarter as a place where if you had a good enough graphic designer, you could raise a million dollars. It didn't matter if the game was any good. So I, even though I am an absolute sucker for beautiful art, a well-drawn board, a well-drawn set of you know, character cards and the like. I mean, I nearly bought a game the other day off a Facebook group called Dragoon just because it had solid metal playing pieces. <laughs> like, so, like, for, you know, so flag, <laughs> can we talk about the kind of the beautiful aesthetic quality of heft? Like the, one of the yeah. nice things about Azul is the heft of those resin tokens. Right? Yeah, they're, they're fantastic. So I think there's a lot of considerations to aesthetics that um, the – consumer in me is attached to but the game player in me i'm just assessing them on one rubric one rubric only which is does this have all the information i need because there is something beautiful about a game that doesn't look that great but the information presented is perfectly presented and that i think is advanced squad later i guess the the only other thing we might bring up with aesthetics if it's relevant to whichever game we're talking about is whether there are elements of the way in which the game is presented which uh, detract in any way from our enjoyment or our ability to play the game. Absolutely. For example, I am currently loving Five Minute Dungeon but I am slightly worried about the quality of the card stock, of the cards we're using because they are are being violently (laughs) thrown around, (laughs) which is is essential to the game. You have to move quickly. But the problem is if that is an essential part of your game and you – the cards are poor quality cardstock and will start to rip and break within, you know, a few games, then that's actually something which will detract from the playability of your game. Yeah. So, you know, there are elements which, you know, for example, if you you play something with colours and um, the colours are too close together and you can't see them properly or... It's particularly bad for colourblind players. It really is. One of our friends is colourblind and there are some elements of some games that are just... 
They're can't causing, play. They're causing problems. Yeah. So it literally needs people to confirm something for them. Yeah. yeah. So you bring up another really interesting point, which is this aesthetic trade-offs. Mm. You know, um, one of the, my bugbears in games is when people make miniatures that aren't necessary. There are just so many games with completely yeah. unnecessary blobs of plastic. Cool mini or not, I'm looking at you. It's just, you know, rum and bones would be easier if – you tokens. Kept, yeah, you just like kept the crew. Track. The crew yeah. could be tokens. Yeah, like or without they could be a, a dice. They could be a, a specific color of dice. Um, instead of having to have thousands of, of bits of plastic on the board, look, I mean, look it looked. Yeah, I was going to say it looks yeah. great while you're playing it, yeah. but managing it becomes yeah. a detraction. So here's um, an aesthetic trade-off again. One uh, five-minute dungeon. It's a trade-off between a gorgeous graphic design and spending a probably not inconsiderable sum on famous voice actors to do the smartphone app. Yeah, yeah. But the trade-off <laughs> there is they didn't pay much money for cardboard. That's a trade-off. That's and I think there's a lot of games making those aesthetic trade-offs. I mean, almost probably the most ubiquitous cardboard in 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 games is the the kind of laminate stuff that they print the thick componentry on. Um, how often I've had a game not ruined but changed by virtue of a scuff mark or a scratch or heaven forbid you put the foot of your chair on a component you've dropped on the ground by accident and the card gets or you know something gets marked in such a way I'm thinking of Vast I had one of the tiles from Vast marked and um, Leader Games replaced it which was great but it would have caused that tile to be extremely obvious to every player everyone would have known what it was it would have changed the the tenor of the game dramatically so there's, I think there's a lot of aesthetic considerations that don't get talked about very often. Yeah, absolutely. Which, again, exactly the sort of thing that we want to talk about. And I guess um, that that last component, and, and you were talking about, Nick, before how the first three facets that we were talking about, uh, design balance and tactics, all sort of, they, they do form a, a fairly cohesive unit. The last thing that we want to talk about is is our enjoyment of the game that we were talking about in each podcast. Right, which realistically is going to be a bit of a culmination in the four of the four topics. Like, what did you enjoy? Did you enjoy the tactical space that the game worked in? Did, was it, you know, this game was so dang pretty? I, I, you know, the the balance was completely gone, but God, I enjoyed playing every part of it. You know, every second. Um, you know, what what I sort of want to be talking about in that enjoyment factor is what makes me want to play that game again. And what makes me kind of have reservations about it, yeah? So, I mean, Alice, are you in a same sort of headspace or is there other things you want to look at? Um, for me, it's also really important to remember that um, how, you in, how much you enjoy a game is also really dependent um, and it's not something that we can, you know, talk about directly, but... Um, it's about how your brain works and it's about who you play the game with. Um, so, for example, I am not super competitive, as I think I mentioned in the previous episode, oh, and oh yes. therefore yeah. I'm not necessarily going to enjoy playing games with people for whom winning is the most important thing. Um, I think what's great about... Um, how much I've been able to play games with Malcolm and Nick is that they enjoy winning, but neither of them want to win at the cost of the enjoyment of the other players of the game. Um, and so it playing the game becomes the point, not winning the game. The funny thing, Alice, if I can psychoanalyze you for a second, 
feel free. <laughs> it's not is like that, it'll be the first time. Is that I think I think you're more competitive than any of us give you credit for, but I think the person with whom you are competing is always yourself. <laughs> this is why I took up archery. <laughs> uh, you should also try golf maybe. <laughs> I'm giving you a serious side eye right now. Seriously, yeah. Serious side eye. So, Nick, game game enjoyment. What's 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 in that kind of space for you? Well, look, I think you put it really well before, Mel. It's the four elements. I mean, I I, starting from the bottom all the way to the top. um, You know, for me, setting up a game. Smelling the ink as you punch it for the first time, like the kind of the satisfying feeling of componentry. And I remember a while back I bought one, I bought, uh, I can't remember now, Uwe Rosenberg, I bought one of his games, um, Aura et Labora. And it was a disappointment to find that it was printed on incredibly thin cardboard because I was expecting the thick cardstock of, of Agricola and I was not the only person disappointed by this. So, I mean, I think there's a, for me, there's that, you know, what brings me back, there is something incredibly fun, for example, about pulling tiles out of the bag in a zool. Um, it's yeah, just gotcha. it's, it's yeah. glorious, you know. Yeah. And it's, it's extremely satisfying when you realise that you can pull four tiles out of the bag each time so, just so by practice. feel. <laughs> it's really hard at the beginning and then you go, no, I know exactly what four tiles feels like in my hand now. <laughs> um, so I think, I think that that's, you know, it would be foolish to claim that I didn't enjoy a game with a really pleasing set of componentry that was quite fun to yeah. to sort of lay on the table with a thwack or a click or whatever the sound is that they make when you when you're doing things with them. Um, but other than that, I'm I I love a game that feels like a well-oiled machine. Um, some of the games that I have found most frustrating have been games that that feel unpolished. They feel like certain levers don't connect, or that there are too many uh, levers where there shouldn't be, or yeah, too many moving parts. Yeah, that are, that are, that are disconnected. Too many or squeaky ones, or they go somewhere yeah, else. Yeah, you yeah. know, there's a they go, you know they kind of output to somewhere they shouldn't output, or there's you know rules that pop up and break immersion, like the one I was talking about before with panic stations. So um, I feel like I feel like that's that, what brings me back is that kind of combination of just the the sheer joy of board games compared to say a computer game I mean, you can get a lot of joy out of a computer game but a board game is an aesthetic experience so that's important that brings me back the design i want it to be really i hate to use the word but elegant i want to feel that elegance i want to feel like it's got out of my way like it's it's pulled something really impressive off um, and in terms of the kind of the question of winning there's plenty of games i don't care if i win or not but i wouldn't mind having a sense of how the moving parts all lock together yeah um, so it'll bring me it'll bring me back if it if it's if it's got some clear strategic depth it'll bring me back if it it feels good to play it and it'll bring me back if it's a really clever design I mean and that's what we're after right we we want one of the things as we sort of discussed when we're when we're running this podcast we wanted to bring you the discussions that we have at the end of a game about what we loved about a game like it, it, it's about the enjoyment we don't play board games because well, it seems like a good waste of a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, we, we play them because in general we enjoy them. But what do we enjoy? Yeah, and, and it's about bringing that information together and, and sharing it with you guys. So that's kind of it. That, that's, that's the second part of our, of our preview. We will uh, be kicking off as soon as possible. And as we've said, we are going to talk about the design of a game. We are going to talk about the balance of the game. We are going to talk about the tactics that we tried early 
the tactics as they evolved what we think is the sort of the scope of of strategies that are out there we're going to talk about the the aesthetics and the production qualities of any given game um how good were the meeple how good were the cards how good were the miniatures or how bad were they yeah and in those instances we're not doing five minute dungeon this season but if they've incorporated something like an app which you know i'm gonna, I'm gonna give that game a bit of a plug that timer app yeah with with honest trailer guy voice is spectacular yeah and then our overall enjoyment yeah why did we spend the first three hours of this afternoon why we were just wanting to get ready just constantly playing a game that we could not stop playing yeah that's the sort of thing that we want to bring to you guys Thank you for listening. If you've got any questions, you can find us through whichever social media channel you care to use. We are on pretty much all of them. Um, is it my turn? The podcast is pretty much the name you'll find us with. My name is Malcolm Davies. I've had with me my regular panels, uh, Alice and Nick. Guys, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll talk to you again soon.